This is Africa Digest. Well, good evening and welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting from Johannesburg at the SABC Auckland Park Studios. We're on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. I'm Benjamin Mushatama. I'm standing in for today. And with me, uh, driving the show, I have Joalani Tulo, Wisani Matebula, and Tabi Suntema. Top stories on Africa Digest this hour. U.S. President's first address to a joint sitting of Congress provides an opportunity for him to overcome divisions in the country. The report points out that the public in South Africa are increasingly intolerant of corruption and also later on we'll have our economics and our sports. But before we get into our show today, let's get our news from Joala Netulo. Thank you, Benjamin. Good afternoon. Security officials say police have arrested 22 people after hundreds went on the rampage in Egypt's coastal city of Port Said. They were protesting against the death sentences of 10 residents for their part in a deadly 2012 soccer riot. The officials say protesters set tires ablaze, torched two police cars and pelted policemen with rocks on Monday night in the Mediterranean Mediterranean city's low-income residential area of Fatima al-Zaha. Egypt's highest appeals court last week upheld the death sentences against the 10 for murder and other charges. Somali's newly elected President Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed has declared a national disaster due to severe drought. Aid agencies estimate that at least 3 million have been affected by the crisis. The Horn of African Nation is one of the three countries, along with Yemen and Nigeria, on the verge of famine, which has already declared in which has already been declared rather in South Sudan an unprecedented food crisis. The World Health Organization warned on Monday that Somalia was at risk of its third famine in 25 years. Malawians in the northern region district of Karonga, with the board which borders Tanzania, have opposed the relocation process of refugees from Zaleka Camp in Doha Central Region District. They say the influx of refugees into the country poses a security risk. George Mhango reports. Malawi and the United Nations High Commission for Refugees officials still agree to relocate refugees to Karonga district. The district borders Tanzania in northern Malawi. The new camp will accommodate about 40,000 of them. The current Zareka camp in Doha, central region of Malawi, only accommodates 28,000, which is too much for the camp. Minister of Home Affairs Grace Chiumia justifies the decision, saying Malawi is a signatory of the UN Treaty on Refugees and UNHCR attributes the move to congestion at the current camp. 
German police have raided more than 20 sites in Berlin with links to a mosque visited by Tunisian a Tunisian asylum seeker who killed 12 people in an attack on a Christmas market in December. Berlin police spokesperson Winfried Wenzel says the reason for the raid was an issued ban against the Fusilit 33 organization. The Tunisian man Andris Amri killed 12 people and injured dozens more by driving a truck into a crowded festive market in Berlin. Amri, who pledged allegiance to the Islamic State, was shot dead by Italian police in Milan four days later. And finally, U.S. President Donald Trump says his predecessor Barack Obama is personally behind the growing intelligence leaks and nationwide protests against his administration. Trump made the accusation in a television interview. He also claimed there were connections between Obama's team and the devastating leaks that have dodged he that have dogged his first term, his first month rather, in office. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Well, you are listening to us here on Africa Digest. Uh, remember, we'll have our economics and our sports later. The top stories in economics today, Vodacom's Tanzanian subsidiary receives approval to list on a Dar es Salaam stock exchange. And also we'll get our sports where the main headline is Springbok coach relieved to have retained his job after a series of reviews by the South African Rugby Union's Executive Council. Uh, those are the stories that are coming up later on in our economics and sports. But let's start with our big story for this hour. United States President Donald Trump's first address to a joint sitting of Congress is an opportunity for him to overcome divisions in the country. But uh, one analyst believes that's unlikely to happen. A Yale University historian believes that clearly demarcated lines have already been drawn in the sand by this president and his maiden address to Congress will be used to underline those distinctions. The primetime address with its pomp and ceremony in the hallowed halls of the United States Congress is only expected to be used as the ultimate victory lap for President Trump over Washington's political establishment. Sharon Bryce Peace reports. The President of the United States. It's an annual ritual that has come to epitomize the power of the President. Legislators, military chiefs, and Supreme Court justices all in attendance to listen to the Commander in Chief's vision of America. Yale University history professor Daniel Magaziner with some insight into this political occasion. Typically this what is on non-election years or not immediately following inauguration called the State of the Union is when the president lays out his agenda. Um, Donald Trump's agenda is pretty clear so I don't know that he needs it to be laid out and in point of fact in the last many years as media messaging has become more important for presidents Obama, everyone knew what Obama was doing before his joint sitting and his State of the Union but it still is this moment of, of ritual and this moment of political pomp and circumstance. And it will be interesting to see how he, how he plays it. An agenda likely to emphasize items that got him elected in the first place. Border and national security, repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, tax reform, and a major push in infrastructure spending. But it's President Trump's unpredictability that could make this a joint sitting like no other. The thing about him that changes least of all is how unpredictable he is. Um, So I'm not even sure he knows. The expectation is, and we've been waiting for a long time to think, okay, when, since he was inaugurated, this is when Donald Trump will become more presidential.
And if there ever there was a time to be more presidential, it would be during a joint sitting of Congress. Um, my guess is that he won't do that. There's an opportunity for him to do that. There's an opportunity for him to say, look, I'm about overcoming divisions. We are one nation as we are one body sitting here together. Let's talk about things we agree about. Infrastructure, something of that that appeals to Democrats as well. Um, my guess is that's not what he's going to do. President Trump's first 40 days in office have been dramatic and at times chaotic, with hundreds of protests around the country, executive orders that have seen the courts rule against the administration, and the public attacks on the media that have been unprecedented. And while President Trump could very well reach out to the other side, it's unlikely that he will forget the core supporters that elevated him to the presidency, while reveling in the majorities Republicans enjoy in both houses of Congress. Professor Magaziner believes that Trump is not governing as someone who lost the popular vote by almost three million. He's governing like someone who has a mandate. And he imagines himself to have a mandate, I think, from his base. So when it comes to this joint sitting, will he offer that mandate to his base, that red meat to those that make America great again crowd who voted him into office? Or will he try to appeal to that, you know, 83% of the population that did not vote for him? My guess is it's going to be the former, that he is going to throw red meat to his base to say, look at me, you voted me in here to be a change maker, and I'm going to throw grenades even from within, I mean figurative grenades, but throw grenades even from within the hallowed halls of Congress. At the very least, a spectacle given the starring role. I'm Sherman Bricebees in New York. In our next story, the government of Japan has granted more than 2.5 million U.S. dollars to the United Nations High Commission for Refugees to assist Central African Republic uh, or Central African refugees, rather, in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The UNHCR describes such a support as a very important one since financial needs are growing for both refugees from the Central African Republic and their host communities in the north of the DRC. Jean-Noël Mbamweze reports from Kinshasa. At least 103,000 refugees from the Central African Republic are currently living here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Most of them are in camps while others are living in host families in the north of this country. Those people are facing growing humanitarian needs in several fields and indeed the United Nations High Commission for Refugees has described the 2,594,000 US dollars grant received from the Japanese government as a very important support. And according to the UNHCR spokesperson here, Simon Ingalbert Luboku, the money will be used for assistance in different areas including health care, fight against malnutrition, education and access to clean water. We have received more than $2.5 million for refugees from the Central African Republic living in the north of DRC. Uh, this is uh, a donation that will help us to better assist those uh, refugees in terms of um, education, health, water, sanitation, 
Uh, we have some 103,000 uh, refugees from Central African Republic in DRC. They are living in fourth camp in North and South uh, Ubangi, uh, Bili, uh, Inke, Boyabu and Mole, uh, also in one camp in the former Oriental province. And the, uh, others are living with host communities. The United High Commission for Refugees has directed its assistance policies mostly towards the autonomy of people under its mandate and that's indeed the way the UNHCR plans to use the money it receives from donors. Meanwhile, a staff from the National Committee for Refugees who didn't want to be named told Channel Africa the committee is making some efforts alongside with its partner, the UNHCR, for things to move well, although there are financial problems. We are moving well, although there are financial problems, and indeed the UNHCR together with the National Committee for Refugees are putting efforts together to try and uh, improve refugee conditions here. We are moving well. Last year, the UN Refugees Agency has appealed for 57 million US dollars to bring assistance to both the Central African refugees living here in the Democratic Republic of Congo and the host communities in this country's northern side, but the UNHCR received only 9% of the amount it requested, and this made it very difficult for the UN Refugees Agency to improve its assistance to those people who have found asylum here in the DRC after they fled in security situation in their country. The more than 2.5 million US dollars grant from the government of Japan has then come at the right time and in Indeed, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees has said Japan remains one of the main donors it gets funds from for the benefit of refugees all over the world. Channel Africa Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kulitranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Yes, you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, and this is uh, Africa Digest. My name is Benjamin Mushatama, standing in on our program where we give you the latest news on what's happening on the continent of Africa. Remember, we're on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa, and also on DSTV on Channel 802 on the audio bouquet. Now, next story, the public in South Africa are increasingly intolerant of corruption and the abuse of power by those in positions of leadership. 
membership and are more willing to hold them to account. This is according to a new report by Corruption Watch. The report reviews the past five years of the public reporting the experiences of corruption and celebrates whistleblowers who have chosen to take action. More from Moira Campbell, who is the head of communications at Corruption Watch quite gratifying for us to see the incredible increase in the number of complaints of corruption that we've received from pretty much cross-section of whistleblowers from around the country. So this past year, 2016, we had a total of 4,391 reports. Sorry to be so specific, but it sort of brings us to a total of about close to 15,000 reports of corruption since we launched in 2012. And I think what it shows, I mean, it was quite a, a, a substantial increase over the previous year, is that there is a greater willingness on the part of of the public to report corruption and to hold leaders to account wherever they see corruption taking place. So there seems to be a, a, a bigger, well, can I say, appetite for, for outing people committing corrupt acts and particularly the abuse of public resources and public power for private gain. So there is always pretty much a private element, Mm. I could say that. During which period was this report compiled and and exactly how was was the research conducted? Okay, so it it basically covers a full year, so sort of running from the 1st of January to the end of December, um, and the, the data is drawn from our CRM system. We have a, quite a sophisticated and very secure CRM system that captures all our, our reports of corruption. Now, we have multiple reporting channels, so people can report either online, and that seems to be um, probably the most common way that people report corruption. They go to our website and they fill out the form and, and it can be done anonymously. So we have a number of reporting channels and what happens once the reports have been made, they are, are looked at in terms of whether they fit in with our definition of corruption. You know, there are many different definitions out there, but our definition looks specifically at the abuse of public resources and public power for private gain. The report also shows that people are becoming increasingly intolerant to corruption as well as the abuse of power by those in positions of leadership. Are they doing anything about it, though? Is there any reaction of some sort of public, from the public? The actually, yes. You know what, I think uh, we can only really point to the, the, the messages of support that we get and the fact that we have more reports than we've ever had before. So we get a lot of communication from the public through our social media channels. We also have a, another dedicated website called Corruption Watch Connected, and through these different channels, we get a lot of feedback from the public. But I think perhaps the most telling kind of uh, piece of evidence that the public is willing to be more vocal is the fact that we've got more and more reports on corruption. And I think, you know, one of the things we pointed out was just that if we look at 2016, it was definitely a year of in, increasing a, a more vocal uh, sort of response from the public many different issues out there. And I think corruption is one of those. It's just one of the issues that are really, um, you know, that, that that's considered quite pressing in our society. So the fact that we've seen this increase in corruption and we have, in fact, many more people walking into our offices from 
actually it comes from, we had, you know, somebody coming from Kimberley, from Limpopo, you know, we had people just coming and wanting to tell their stories. Mm. I think it's a very important uh, point to make. Mm. And I suppose such a report also then opens room for institutions such as yours to be able to work around anti-corruption strategies, but but really how effective are those? Well, yeah, and in fact, I'm glad that you mentioned that because for 2017, one of our uh, you know one of our key focus areas is to to get the public to engage around the national anti-corruption strategy, which is a government initiative. Obviously, involves several different departments um, that are that are involved in in fighting corruption, and you know we we are very willing to work together on that process as long as it does allow us to. To, to get the public engaged. And I think, you know, if we refer to our campaign last year, which we called the Bruins Anti Campaign, which is really about facilitating a more transparent process for the selection of the public protector, not the actual selection of the protector, but the process, that was enormously successful. We were able to get the public to, to really be part of the vetting, the public were able to see the interviews live. And I think what we wanted to do with the national anti-corruption strategy is to is to physically engage the public face to face on all our online channel, channels and to get the feedback. I mean, we obviously are engaged in that process. I mean, it's it's definitely not there. And in terms of, I, I think your question is very is very valid. Like, I think our big issue is how will it be implemented? So you can have the best strategy in the world. But if it's not implemented, then if it's not accepted. That's Moira Campbell, head of communications at Corruption Watch, uh, talking to Channel Africa's Homotsumo Pulani. That takes us uh, to 17.21 Central African time and moving on to our next story. The Malawians in the northern region district of Karonga, which borders Tanzania, have opposed the relocation process of refugees from uh, Zaleka camp in Doha central region district. They say the influx of refugees into the country poses a security risk. As George Mahango reports, pressure is mounting for the authorities to rescind the decision. Malawi and United Nations High Commission for Refugees officials still agree to relocate refugees to Karonga district. The district borders Tanzania in northern Malawi. The new camp will accommodate about 40,000 of them. The current Zareka camp in Doha, central region of Malawi, only accommodates 28,000, which is too much for the camp. Minister of Home Affairs Grace Chiumia justifies the decision, saying Malawi is a signatory of the UN Treaty on Refugees and UNHCR attributes the move to congestion at the current camp. Side planner for UNHCR at Zareka Refugee Camp is Alexander Maber. The Malawian government has taken an initiative with UNHCR to relocate the refugees to a more sustainable, durable solution area where our services will be minimized through an initiative that incorporates livelihood um, as a project. Um, so Zaleka Camp, as we speak today, is, is somewhat of a temporary uh, a settlement for the uh, refugees. 
The idea with the Malawian government and UNHCR, the initiative with the Ministry of Home Affairs and uh, um, several other NGOs, development-based uh, donors, is to relocate the refugees to a more prominent area where the refugees can actually become self-reliant. And this year will be in Karonga. Uh, we have already started to make steps towards creating a camp, roads, electricity, finding water in that area where these uh, refugees will be relocated to have farming land, irrigation. So a more livelihood, self-reliant sustainability is what the uh, Ministry of Home Affairs, Malawian government, in other words, and UNHCR are working together in giving the refugees that come here uh, a more sustainable, durable solution for their well-being in Malawi. Paramount Chief Kiungu of the Ngonde people in Karonga provided the land where the new camp will be constructed. He says he is justified by his decision to providing land to government to construct the camp there. For them, the refugee camp will attract social amenities such as health care, vocational training, trade and social services that are to benefit the locals. Malawi Secretary of Culture Dr. Gomani thinks refugees deserve love. We want the people actually to be in the forefront, not government to be in the forefront. Because if they are in the forefront, they will be able to express themselves. And that is what we want. We want to learn from them. Recently, UNHCR representative to Malawi, Monique Ekok, held Malawi for the gesture in keeping the refugees without any challenges. We are very grateful to the government of Malawi for what they are doing, for the work they are doing with us as UNHCR together to ensure that refugees are protected, that we advocate for their plight, and we also show their resilience for the many things that they do on their own. The refugees are from the Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi, Rwanda, Ethiopia, Somalia, and other countries from the Horn of Africa. It is yet to be seen whether communities will succumb to the decision made by the authorities and UNHCR to relocate the refugees to the northern part of Malawi. George Mhango Blantai. Cameroon has again seized Nigerian vessels fishing illegally on its territorial waters off the Atlantic coast in Douala after two others were intercepted earlier this month. The occupants of the ships are Nigerians, Cameroonians and Malians who assist Chinese fishermen in the seas. They've been arrested and detained in Cameroon. Moki Kinzeka reports from Yaoundé. Cameroon's National Marine that intercepted the vessels brought them to the Douala seaport and handed it over to officials of the Ministry of Livestock, Fisheries and Animal Industry. Marine officer Hamadou Lami says they handed the suspects to the officials for the law to take its call. He says the illegal fishermen were hiding, thinking that they could not be traced in the night without knowing that the Navy has got effective and sophisticated devices to track illegal vessels. Occupants are Nigerians, Cameroonians and Malians who assist Chinese fishermen to wreck the ocean of its resources. They have been arrested and detained in Cameroon. Nigerian-born vessel captain Felix Uche told Channel Africa the conditions under which they were arrested. I was on board a fishing vessel trolling in Nigeria water. So 
And then in the night, I was trolling. So around two o'clock, I enter Nigeria water, uh, Cameroon water. Sorry, Cameroon water. Before I don't know, but I am in fault. But when the uh, army came, a uh, navy came, that they show me the chart. I say I'm a fault. According to the law, the company that owns the fishing vessel has the right to apply for an amicable settlement. If not, depending on the gravity of the crime committed, Cameroon can engage a legal action against the company. René Salieu, the highest government official in charge of fishing in the area, says they will not treat the issue lightly because Chinese companies have been using Africans to destroy resources on African waters. Le danger c'est qu'ils polluent nos productions, ils prennent nos ressources. He says the vessels pollute all resources in the sea just because they want to carry along all the fish they find. He says if the current trends continue, the natural resources of the sea will disappear. Exporter vers le pays de provenance de ces bateaux. But many fishing vessel owners have been complaining of abuses. Gabonese-born Leo Camden says officials in charge of the environment arbitrarily extort money from them. He says although he has an authorization to fish on Gabonese waters, his vessel was intercepted and he was asked to pay a fine of $250,000 for fishing in a forbidden zone. And Etienne Foyang from Equatorial Guinea says they want legislation to specify how much they have to pay as fines when they go wrong. In Guinea, for example, nos déroutés. He says they had to pay $60,000 because they made an error by selling out of the area they were authorized to, to Equatorial Guinea waters. On m'a fait payer 30 millions. Besides the penalties expected, the fish caught was confiscated and auctioned to the public. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzaka in Yawundi. You're still listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Thank you for joining us here on Africa Digest, the latest news on what's happening on the continent of Africa. It's 5.30 right now, Central African time. Let's quickly move on and uh, get our headlines from Jolani. Thank you, Benjamin. Making headlines, security officials say police have arrested 22 people after hundreds went on the rampage in East Egypt's coastal city of Port Said. Somali's newly elected president, Mohamed Abdullahi Mohamed, has declared a national disaster due to severe drought. And finally, German police have raided more than 20 sites in Berlin with links to a mosque visited by a Tunisian asylum seeker who killed 12 people in an attack on a Christmas market in December. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
Now let's uh, move on to our next story. But before we move on to our next story, I just want to remind you uh, that in a few minutes we will have our economics news and our sports. Uh, if you just joined us on our economics, the big story there is Vodacom's Tanzanian subsidiary receiving approval to list on the Dar es Salaam stock exchange. We're seeing uh, uh, Vodacom moving there into that realm. And also in our sports, we focus in South Africa where the Springbok coach is relieved uh, to have retained his job after a series of reviews by the South African Rugby Union's Executive Council. So those are updates still coming up in around uh, uh, 40 minutes or so, 43, 44 minutes uh, coming up. But let's look at our big political story. Eight agencies have warned the tens of thousands of people in South Sudan face death by starvation after famine was declared in that country. Up to 100,000 people are currently living in areas affected by famine in the East African country with charities and the United Nations warning that unless emergency aid is delivered fast, many more areas will be affected. Aid agencies have also expressed concerns that their relief efforts are being hampered by the ongoing conflict between the government and opposition forces. Channel Africa spoke to Philip Jadanatana, who is South Africa's ambassador to South Africa, about how the government of South Sudan is dealing with the crisis and whether the government is providing enough support to humanitarian agencies to ensure easy access of aid. What the government is right now doing is to try to to beef up uh, security, you know, which which is which is happening in most of the areas as a result of the, of the peace agreement that has been signed, and also to provide um, uh, to provide escorts like uh, on roads for some of the convoys that might might be needing to reach this area. So that's mainly what the government is doing. But uh, in addition to that, the government also through the, you know, the uh, department or the Ministry of Humanitarian Affairs and the South Sudan Relief and Rehabilitation Commission has also made an appeal uh, that the shortage of food and, of course, it is welcoming uh, anybody, uh, and, and by that I mean the international organizations and people who deal in humanitarian uh, emergencies to try to come in and give a help. Now, aid agencies that are scrambling to deliver emergency assistance to those in urgent need of food are encountering some difficulties, Ambassador, as they try to alleviate the situation. And one of those challenges has been that of access of areas that are mostly affected. These access issues continue to prevent these aid workers from reaching the people that are facing starvation, some of them hiding in remote areas. Is the government of South Sudan working closely with aid agencies to ensure easy access of areas that need emergency assistance? Yes, last week uh, the president actually in the opening of parliament uh, made that very, very clear that, you know, the government of Sudan or South Sudan is there really to work with um, all relief agencies that would want to to, to provide uh, relief services uh, to affected areas in South Sudan. And the government through its uh, humanitarian wing uh, like the SRC and uh, the, the, the Ministry of um, humanitarian affairs will be there to provide, uh, to give any assistance that might be required from the government to see that uh, relief agencies get access to all of these areas. But as you might be aware, you know, I think uh, the main issue really now is that some of these uh, humanitarian agencies are are, um, 
are, are actually overstretched. Uh, as you might have heard in the report, it's not only South Sudan. You know, I mean, Kenya last week has declared a national disaster on on. On, on the media, you might have heard that, you know, the, the same problem of drought has affected Somalia. Nigeria is also affected by most of northern Uganda is actually affected. So I think it is actually really competing priorities and, and the fact that some of these humanitarian agencies are overstretched, that actually makes the, the situation uh, very worse. But for issues of accessibility and, and giving the necessary assistance to such that these remote areas are able to be reach. I think the government is there to try to, to help to see that the humanitarian organizations as usual reach these areas. A very concerning situation indeed, Ambassador. But what can the international community do to help alleviate the situation? Well, I think the appeal has already gone out and I think um, uh, some of the, uh, the the international community I think um, are represented in the various humanitarian organizations that, uh, that are, all, are already present on the on, on on ground in South Sudan. So the appeal from our humanitarian uh, ministry, the Ministry of Humanitarian Affairs, is for them to do their own assessment and carry out and, and whatever assistance they think they can be able to provide to alleviate or to, to try to um, to help uh, to rescue this situation would be very much appreciated. Now, former advisor to President Salva Kiir, uh, Rebecca Garang, has called for President Salva Kiir uh, to step down, accusing him of war crimes and being responsible for the severe shortage of food uh, that we are talking about in South Sudan. What do you make of the accusations by Rebecca Garang that President Kiir needs to step down because she blames him for the the famine that is uh, devastating the country at the moment. If you turn around the question now and you ask her, you know, will the stepping down of President Kiir now solve this humanitarian uh, uh, situation? The, the the answer obviously is is is, is no because. Um, uh, President Kiir is president of South Sudan. He was elected by the people of South Sudan. And uh, if time comes for the people of South Sudan and they decide that they don't want uh, Kiir to lead them, then I think they will decide that through the ballot. It's not for for an individual uh, who disagrees with the government like Rebecca and others to say that they do the step down because I think that's how right. they can they can always say that but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to happen. Now the famine comes more than three years into South Sudan's conflict, a political spat between President Salva Kiir and his former deputy Rick Machar that devolved into an ethnically motivated struggle engulfing much of the country. When will President Kiir's national dialogue plan, which seeks to restore peace, be implemented, Ambassador? Well, I think the, the plan for the national dialogue is to start in, in March. So, um, um, and all the preparations on the ground have been, have been, have been happening already, especially on the grassroots level uh, in regards to the state. So there are already consultations that are going on in the different states at the level of the grassroots so that people try to consult and actually come with ideas of what they would want the national dialogue, what form it should take. Well, uh, that uh, was uh, the voice of uh, Philip Jadonatana, who's uh, uh, the South African ambassador in South Africa, of South Sudan, actually, talking to Channel Africa's uh, Kumbelo Mundelele.
Now moving on to environmental news, activists from Greenpeace Nordic and Greenpeace Germany are protesting at Stat Oil oil rig in a, a feud in northern Norway. Uh, Truls Golosen, who's the head of uh, Greenpeace Norway, says the new oil drilling in the Arctic uh, if violating the Norwegian constitution, uh, which says that the state shall ensure future generations the right to a safe and healthy environment, uh, that the Norwegian government has an obligation to protect people's rights to a healthy environment. He also says that they know that the burning oil co- causes rather climate change. Yes, the Stoptoil is planning to drill several exploration wells for oil in the Arctic part of the Barents Sea offshore Norway. We believe that is fundamentally wrong because the world does not need any more oil, gas or coal. We have already found too much for the climate to absorb. Therefore, we are protesting Statoil's plans to drill for more oil in these sensitive Arctic areas. The area that is planned for new oil wells how sensitive is it in the area it is quite sensitive some of the wells that that oil is planning to drill are very close to the nature reserve bear island which is the home for millions of arctic seabirds and some of the wells are within the marginal ice zone for arctic sea ice and if an oil spill hits arctic ice it is impossible to clean it up within the season. So these wells are quite extreme and uh, further north than any well that has ever been drilled on the Norwegian shelf. Now, what has the Norwegian drilling oil companies benefited from drilling oil in this area of the Barents Sea? Well, so far they have made only very limited discoveries in this area. But this year, they have been given new licenses in areas that have never been opened for oil drilling before. Greenpeace and our allies, Nature and Youth and other organizations in Norway, have taken this additional licensing to court because we believe opening new licenses in light of the current climate situation is a breach against the Norwegian constitution. But the government is pushing ahead with the support of the companies. And rather than seeing the melting Arctic ice as a signal that we have to stop climate change, they are treating it as a business opportunity. So now it has become almost a norm in most of the countries that oil or other natural resources are being exploited in such a way that there are laws that have been put in place in order to protect nature. But in turn, the very same governments who have enacted those laws, they turn against those laws and violate them. Is it a pattern that is going on now internationally, as it is with this oil exploration? Yes, that's a quite good description of the situation. We are seeing worldwide governments that are signing up to environmental protection, to nature protection agreements, to climate agreements that we all have to reduce greenhouse gas emissions to stabilize the climate. At the same time, we are seeing the same governments continue to push ahead for fossil fuel development as if that was a completely different chapter of the reality, which it of course isn't. Now, 
How is this in the long term or long run endangering the health and the lives of the people, including species that are living in and around those particular areas, looking at uh, this Barents Sea in particular? Well, the Barents Sea is particularly affected by impacts of climate change. The area has lost enormous areas of earlier ice cover and the ice-dependent species are struggling and getting their habitats severely shrinked. However, climate change is a global problem, so it affects people and animals and habitats all over the world. And the situation is that the world cannot afford to burn more oil than what has already been discovered. So we're calling on the Norwegian government to both reduce the stress in the Barents Sea, which is already heavily impacted by climate change, and also to take their share of responsibility for the global climate by keeping oil in the ground. So the Norwegian government is it signatory to the Paris Agreement? Yes, Norway was one of the first countries to sign and ratify the Paris Agreement. They have been very proud about their facilitative role in getting such a strong and clear agreement. But at the same time, the country is moving ahead with oil licensing, even in very sensitive areas, as if nothing had happened. So that's a schizophrenic approach to the climate problem that we are quite concerned about. Now, you mentioned the issue of taking the government to court. How successful do you feel that this would prevent the government from going ahead with its plans for this oil exploration in the area? Well, we hope that the court will be able to deem the licenses in the Barents Sea invalid as a breach of the Constitution's commitment to a healthy climate and environment, also for future generations. That was Trolls Golosan, who is the head of Greenpeace Norway on the line from Oslo, uh, talking there with to Channel Africa's Wandila Kalipa. The story takes us uh, to 1745 Central African time. It's uh, right on the spot, right on the dot for Wisani Matebula, who's here with us uh, to give us our business news. Thanks, Benjamin, and good afternoon. Unilever proposed changes on Tuesday uh, to how to pay its executives and directors less than two weks after seeing of a $143 billion US dollar takeover bid by Kraft Heinz. The changes, which put a greater emphasis on long-term employee share ownership and personal commitment, were announced in Unilever's annual report for 2016. The company said the changes applied to its senior leadership team below the board level, consolidating fixed pay into a single figure and discounting a global share incentive. And board chairperson of South Africa's transport parastatal, Prasa Popomulife, says company processes were flouted when former acting CEO Collins Litzwado's salary was hiked. Litzwado is returning to the transport department from where he was seconded to Prasa in an acting capacity. Prasa terminated Litzwado's acting contract after it emerged that he had hiked his salary by 350%. Mulife says the board was not involved in the salary increase. Clearly, the letter that was written to the Department of Transport, it was not written by me as the chairman of the board. It was written by human capital executive appointed by Mr. Lesuolo after he suspended the one who was querying the salary 
that he might have wanted at the time. And this new one, when she got into office, she immediately wrote and went to the record, took the decision of the previous board, not this board, in relation to a package that was given to the previous CEO. Meanwhile, South Africa's Trade and Industry Minister Rob Davis says there are glitches in the implementation of the localization policy to promote the development of black industrialists through infrastructure projects. Davis has told the media briefing in Parliament that government was working to ensure the decision is implemented. Land redistribution uh, and land reform in an enhanced fashion is dealt with uh, in the budget. The provision for skills development and education uh, has been addressed in a manner that I think is very responsive to the public demands that we've had um, in the past two years on expanding the commercial base of agriculture through drawing in smallholder farmers as producers. We're seeing a movement there, and again the budget seeks to support this. And Vodacom's Tanzanian subsidiary has received uh, an approval to list on the, on the Dar es Salaam uh, stock exchange. It aims to raise 213 million US dollars in the initial public offering, the IPO. Vodacom plans to sell 560 million shares at 37 US dollars each. The IPO is scheduled to take place on March 6th. And South African lawmakers have approved an anti-money laundering bill that will increase scrutiny on the bank accounts of politically exposed people. The country's 400-member National Assembly voted across party lines to have the Financial Intelligence Center Amendment FICA bill signed into law by President Jacob Zuma, practically unchanged from when Parliament first sent it to the President in May. The bill is meant to bolster the fight against global financial crime by making it easier to identify ultimate owners of companies and accounts. At the time, South Africa was under pressure to meet international requirements to pass the corruption regulations. Financial indicators now, the dollar trading at 12.94 South African rents, 10.24 Botswana Pula and 9.5 Zambian Kwacha also trading at 0.80 to the British pound and 0.94 against the euro. The commodities market uh, gold $1,252, platinum at $1,029 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil is at $56.10 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. Time now for our sports uh, with uh, Tabiso Ndema. Good evening sports fans, I'm Tabiso Ndema with your latest sports update at this hour. We begin with cricket news. Proteas coach Russell Domingo has welcomed the return of senior bowlers Mone Mokel and Vernon Philander to the test squad. The 32-year-old Mokel has been unavailable for the Proteas since suffering a back injury during the Caribbean Premier League in July 2016. He returns to the Proteas test squad after being deemed unfit to play in the historic 2-1 series victory over Australia last year, as well as a whitewash triumph over Sri Lanka in January. It was earlier reported that Mokel was told by a medical professional that he might never 
play cricket again. On to rugby news. Springbok coach Alista Kotsie has called for major improvements in all departments of the Springboks. He says the rugby endeavors held at the end of last year have been successful in bringing all super rugby coaches up to speed with what the Springbok want to do this year. Look, I would like to see improvement in our overall game, in all departments, but uh, we, we like to look at it and and in the fundamentals of the game first before we go in you know over uh, and get everything else better so wh- what i mean by that is uh, that that's why the indabas have been so so good and successful is that uh, not only come the two weeks before the test match we want to see that improvement it is already coached by the franchise coaches uh, you know as as from as we're speaking here already, we've agreed at the Indabas that there are certain fundamentals that there should be continuity in, and that we you know should be coach should be coaching all uh, uh, the franchises. It's got nothing to do with style of play and game plans, but it's got to do or the detail in each uh, 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 department of the game. On to soccer news. Despite South Africa's under-20 men's team 3-1 win in their opening match against Cameroon at the 2017 AFCON finals in Zambia at the Levi Mwanawasa Stadium in Indola last night, team coach Thabo Sinong is not getting carried away. He knows that there are still two important encounters to come against Senegal and Sudan. A win against Senegal will see Amajita qualifying for the semi-finals and confirming their ticket to the FIFA under 20 World Cup in Korea in May. We not here to talk about winning the tournament or qualifying for the World Cup, but our main focus is to always approach one game at a time. Like now, our entire focus will be on Senegal. We won't talk about semi-finals, we won't talk about winning the tournament because we are working with youngsters and sometimes they can be inconsistent. They played very well, but we need to push them into the right performance zone just to make sure that they focus on Senegal. We try to analyze the strength and the weakness of Senegal. Football Kenya Federation and the local organizing committee of 2018 Chen Championship met with government officials earlier today over funds needed to complete the stadium's preparation for next January's Chen Championship. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi takes up the story. The cabinet secretary for sports, Hassan Wario, indicated that the government had already put together the immediate demands for the local organizing committee. The local organizing committee will start receiving in batches portion of the 2.7 billion Kenya shillings that is set aside for the event and they will have their first meeting this Tuesday. Out of that, 200 million has been earmarked for the LOC, which is the local organizing committee, whose first meeting will be on Tuesday. President of Football Kenya Federation Nick Mwendo says the CAF team pointed several key aspects that need to be sorted ahead of November this year. We mean changing rules, we need media, we mean medical, we mean, we mean lighting, we mean production, we mean security, CCTV access, cameras, these kind of things. The CAF delegation toured the Moi International Sports Center, Kasarani and Nyaya Stadiums in Nairobi, Kipchoge Keino Grounds in Eldoret, Kenyatta Stadium in Machakos and the Kenoru Stadium in Meru. And wrapping it up with athletics news. 
Former World Marathon record holder Paul Taggart of Kenya has been appointed IAAF ambassador for the World Cross Country Championship slated for next month in Kampala. The five-time World Cross Country Champions Tour of Uganda from February 28 to the 2nd of March will entail visiting different schools, participating in legacy programs and addressing the press on the event. Tegat is also a former World Half Marathon Champion, having won it in 1999 in Parlemo, Italy. He is also the founder of the Popular Sports Personality of the Year Award in Kenya and a member of International Olympic Committee since 2013. The World Cross Country Championships will be held in Kololo Grounds in Kampala on the 26th of March. That's your sport at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Well, it's time now for us to recap our top stories this hour. The U.S. President's first address to a joint sitting of Congress provides an opportunity for him to overcome divisions in the country. And also in this hour, we're looking at a report that was pointing out that the public in South Africa are increasingly intolerant of corruption. Well, that's how we wrap up uh, this hour of Africa Digest today. Remember, we'll be back again at around uh, 7 o'clock p.m. uh, Central African time. So do join us here on uh, Channel Africa. But for myself, Benjamin Mushatama, my awesome producer, Luanda Momi, technical producer, she's fantastic, Catherine Maleka, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you for listening. for comments on the show, remember you can send us an email. Our email address is info at channelafrica.co.za or you can also contact us via SMS. The SMS number is plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. Remember you can tweet us at Channel Africa One as well. We want to hear from you? That Channel Africa Twitter handle is growing every day, so do become part of the family via our Twitter handle. Well, taking us to the top of the hour is Nati. I love the song. It's titled. Makama.